0: Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Just dealing with a lot right now. And when I'm dealing with a lot, um, what I do is I fall back into books that I've always loved. And so I know I just finished doing Holes, which is also a book I always loved, but I'm going to go ahead and read this book because I'm hoping that this book, while reaching your kids and while reaching you, will also save me because I'm 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 shaky. The thing about podcasting is sometimes when you're podcasting, you podcast when you're all the way up. And sometimes you stay there, but I'm not always all the way up. I suffer from depression, anxiety, a lot of things. And so right now I am, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Matilda has always been one of my favorite books. Before it was a favorite movie, it was a favorite book. And I've always loved Roald Dahl. Um, Even without Matilda and without Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which, yeah, you still have James and the Giant Peach. And you have the BFG, which, whew, you know, one day I'll watch that movie. Maybe. One day. Maybe. Um... And then you have the Great Glass Elevator, which I thought was way more bizarre than Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, that just let Roald Dahl go all out with his madness. And you have the witches. Yeah. Yeah. That's still a classic to me. But Matilda is enduring. I think she was the third book that I read of his and loved it had the book up until like a month ago and loved it and um i think that my daughter might have broken it like she had for so long that it just tore in half the the uh, binding got old but then we bought my son a copy because happiness should be shared and so here we are There is music that I love in the world, but there is no better music than the turning of a page of a book. Chapter 1. The Reader of Books It's a funny thing about mothers and fathers. Even when their own child is the most disgusting little blister you could ever imagine, they still think that she or he is wonderful. Some parents go further. They become so blinded by adoration, they manage to convince themselves their children has qualities of genius. Well, there is nothing very wrong with all of this. It's the way of the world. It's only when the parents begin telling us about the brilliance of their own revolting offspring that we start shouting, Bring us a basin. We're going to be sick. School teachers suffer a good deal from having to listen to this sort of twaddle from proud parents, but they usually get their own back when the time comes to write the end-of-term reports. If I were a teacher, I would cook up some real scorchers for the children of doting parents. Your son Maximilian, I will write, is a total washout. I hope you have a family business you could push him into when he leaves school, because he sure as heck won't get a job anywhere else. Or... If I were feeling lyrical that day, I might write, It is a curious truth that grasshoppers have their hearing organs in the sides of their abdomen. Your daughter Vanessa, judging by what she's learnt this term, has no hearing organs at all. I might even delve deeper into natural history and say, The periodical cicada spends six years as a grub underground, and no more than six days as a free creature to sunlight and air. Your son, Wilfrid has spent six years as a grub in this school, and we're still waiting for him to emerge from the chrysalis. A particularly poisonous little girl might sting me into saying, Fiona has the same glacial beauty as an iceberg, but unlike the iceberg, she has absolutely nothing below the surface. I think I might enjoy writing end-of-term reports for the stinkers in my class. But enough of that. We have to get on. Occasionally, one comes across parents who take the opposite line, who show no interest at all in their children. And these, of course, are far worse than the doting ones. Mr. and Mrs. Wormwood were two such parents. They have a son named Michael and a son called Matilda. And the parents looked upon Matilda in particular as nothing more than a scab. A scab is something you have to put up with until the time comes that you can pick it off and flick it away mister and miss Warmwood looked forward enormously to the time they could pick their little daughter off and flicker away preferably into the next county or even further than that it is bad enough that when parents treat ordinary children as though they were scabs and bunions but it becomes somehow a lot worse when the child in question is extraordinary and by that I mean sensitive and brilliant matilda was both of these things but above all she was brilliant Her mind was so nimble and she was so quick to learn that her ability should have been obvious, even to the most half-witted of parents. But Mr. and Mrs. Wormwood were both so gormless and so wrapped up in their own silly little lives that they failed to notice anything unusual about their daughter. To tell the truth, I doubt they would have noticed had she crawled into the house with a broken leg. Matilda's brother Michael was a perfectly normal boy, but the sister as I said, was something to make your eyes pop. By the age of one and a half, her speech was perfect, and she knew as many words as most grown-ups. The parents, instead of applauding her, called her a noisy chatterbox and told her sharply that small girls should be seen and not heard. By the time she was three, Matilda had taught herself to read by studying newspapers and magazines that lay around the house. At the age of four... She could read fast and well, and she naturally began hankering after books. The only book in the whole of this enlightened household was something called Easy Cooking, belonging to her mother. And when she had read this from cover to cover and learned all the recipes by heart, she decided she wanted something more interesting. Daddy, she said, do you think you could buy me a book? A book, he said. What do you want a flaming book for? to read daddy what's wrong with the telly for heaven's sake we have a lovely telly with a twelve-inch screen and now you come asking for a book you're getting spoiled my girl nearly every weekday afternoon matilda was left alone in her house her brother five years older than her went to school her father went to work and her mother went out playing bingo in a town eight miles away miss wormwood was hooked on bingo and played it five afternoons a week On the afternoon of the day when her father had refused to buy her a book, Matilda set out all by herself to walk to the public library in the village. When she arrived, she introduced herself to the librarian, Miss Phelps. She asked if she might sit a while and read a book. Miss Phelps, slightly taken aback at the arrival of such a tiny girl, unaccompanied by a parent, nevertheless told her she was very welcome. Where are the children's books, please? Matilda asked. They're over there on the lower shelves, Miss Phelps told her. Would you like me to help you find a nice one with lots of pictures in it? No, thank you, Matilda said. I'm sure I can manage. From then on, every afternoon, as soon as her mother had left for bingo, Matilda would toddle down to the library. The walk took only ten minutes, and this allowed her two glorious hours sitting quietly by herself in a cozy corner, devouring one book after another. When she had read every single children's book in the place, she started wandering around in search of something else. Miss Phelps, who had been watching her with fascination for the past few weeks, now got up from her desk and went over to her. Can I help you, Matilda? she asked. I'm wondering what to read next, Matilda said. I've finished all the children's books. You mean you've looked at the pictures? Yes. Yes. But I've read the books as well. Miss Phelps looked down at Matilda from her great height, and Matilda looked right back up at her. I thought some were very poor, Matilda said. But others were lovely. I liked the secret garden best of all. It was full of mystery. The mystery of the room behind the closed door and the mystery of the garden behind the big wall. Miss Phelps was stunned. Exactly how old are you, Matilda? she asked. Four years and three months, Matilda said. Miss Phelps was more stunned than ever, but she had the sense not to show it. What sort of book would you like to read next, she asked. Matilda said, I would like a really good one The grown-ups read. A famous one. I don't know any names. Miss Phelps looked along the shelves, taking her time. She didn't quite know what to bring out. How, she asked herself, does one choose a famous grown-up book for a four-year-old girl? Her first thought was to pick a young teenager's romance of the kind that is written for 15-year-old schoolgirls. But for some reason, she found herself instinctively walking past that particular shelf. Try this, she said at last. It is very famous and very good. If it's too long for you, just let me know and I'll find something shorter and a bit easier. Great Expectations, Matilda read, by Charles Dickens. I'd love to try it. I must be mad, Miss Phelps told herself, but to Matilda, she said, of course you may try it. Over the next few afternoons, Miss Phelps could hardly take her eyes from the small girl sitting for hour after hour in the big armchair at the far end of the room with a book on her lap. It was necessary for her to rest it on the lap because it was too heavy for her to hold up, which meant she had to sit leaning forward in order to read. And a strange sight it was, this tiny, dark-haired person sitting there with her feet nowhere near touching the floor, totally absorbed in the wonderful adventures of Pip and old Miss Havisham in her cobwebbed house, and by the spell of magic that Dickens, the great storyteller, had woven with his words. The only movement from the reader was a lifting of the hand every now and then to turn over a page. And Miss Phelps always felt sad when the time came for her to cross the floor and say, It's ten to five, Matilda. During the first week of Matilda's visits, Miss Phelps had said to her, Does your mother walk you down here every day and then take you home? My mother goes to Ellsbury every afternoon to play bingo, Matilda had said. She doesn't know I come here. But that's surely not right, Miss Phelps said. I think you'd better ask her. I'd rather not, said Matilda. She doesn't encourage reading books, nor does my father. But what do they expect you to do every afternoon in an empty house? Just mooch around and watch the telly. I see. She doesn't really care what I do, Matilda said a little sadly. Miss Phelps was concerned about the child's safety on the walk through the fairly busy village high street and the crossing of the road, but she decided not to interfere. Within a week, Matilda had finished Great Expectations, which in that edition contained four hundred and eleven pages. I loved it, she said to Miss Phelps. Has Mr. Dickens written any others? A great number, said the astounded Miss Phelps. Shall I choose you another? Over the next six months, under Miss Phelps' watchful and compassionate eye, Matilda read the following books. Nicholas Nickleby by Charles Dickens. Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Tessita D'Urbervilles by Thomas Hardy. Gone to Earth by Mary Webb. Kim by Ray Yar Kipling. The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells. The Old Man in the Sea by Ernest Hemingway The Sound and the Fury by William Faulkner The Great of Wrath by John Steinbeck The Good Companions by J.B. Priestley Brighton Rock by Graham Greene And Animal Farm by George Orwell It was a formidable list, and by now Miss Phelps was filled with wonder and excitement. But it was probably a good thing that she didn't allow herself to be completely carried away by it all. Almost anyone else witnessing the achievements of this small child would have been tempted to make a great fuss and shout the news all over the village and beyond. But not so Miss Phelps. She was someone who minded her own business and had long since discovered it was seldom worth it to interfere with other people's children. Amen to that, sister. Mr. Hemingway says a lot of things I don't understand, Matilda said to her, especially about men and women. But I loved it all the same. The way he tells it, I feel that I'm right there on the spot watching it all happen. A fine writer will always make you feel that, Miss Phelps said. And don't worry about the bits you can't understand. Sit back and allow the words to wash around you, like music. I will. I will. Did you know, Miss Phelps said, that public libraries like this allow you to borrow books and take them home? I didn't know that, Matilda said. Could I do it? Of course, Miss Phelps said. When you have chosen the book you want, bring it to me so I can make a note of it and it's yours for two weeks. You can take more than one if you wish. From then on, Matilda would visit the library only once a week in order to take out new books and return the old ones. Her own small bedroom now became her reading room, and there she would sit and read most afternoons, often with a mug of hot chocolate beside her. She was not quite tall enough to reach things around the kitchen, but she kept a small box in the outhouse, which she brought in and stood on in order to get whatever she wanted. Mostly it was hot chocolate that she made, warming the milk in a saucepan on the stove before mixing it. Occasionally she made bovril, or Ovaltine. It was pleasant to take a hot drink up to her room and have it beside her as she sat in her silent room, reading in the empty house in the afternoons. The books transported her into new worlds and introduced her to amazing people who lived exciting lives. She went on olden-day sailing ships with Joseph Conrad. She went to Africa with Ernest Hemingway and to India with Rudyard Kipling. She traveled all over the world while sitting in her little room in an English village. Chapter 2. Mr. Wormwood, the Great Car Dealer Matilda's parents owned quite a nice house, with three bedrooms upstairs. While on the ground floor, there was a dining room, and a living room, and a kitchen. Her father was a dealer in second-hand cars, and it seemed he did pretty well at it. Sawdust, he would say proudly, is one of the great secrets of my success. And it costs me nothing. I get it free from the sawmill. What do you use it for, Matilda asked him. Tuh, the father said. Wouldn't you like to know? I don't see how sawdust can help you to sell second-hand cars, Daddy. That's because you're an ignorant little twit, the father said. His speech was never very delicate, but Matilda was used to it. She also knew that he liked to boast, and she would egg him on shamelessly. You must be very clever to find a use for something that costs nothing, she said. I wish I could do it. You couldn't, the father said. You're too stupid. But I don't mind telling young Mike here about it, seeing as how he'll be joining me in the business one day. Ignoring Matilda, he turned to his son and said, I'm always glad to buy a car when some fool has been crashing the gears so badly they're all worn out and rattle like mad. I get it cheap. Then all I do is mix a lot of sawdust with the oil in the gearbox, and it runs as sweet as a nut. How long will it run like that before it starts rattling again? Matilda asked him. Long enough for the buyer to get a good distance away, the father said, grinning. About a hundred miles. But that's dishonest, Daddy, Matilda said. It's cheating. No one ever got rich being honest, the father said. Customers are there to be diddled. Mr. Wormwood was a small, ratty-looking man whose front teeth stuck out underneath a thin, ratty mustache. He liked to wear jackets with large, brightly colored checks, and he sported ties that were usually yellow or pale- green. Now take mileage, for instance, he went on. Anyone who's buying a second-hand car, the first thing he wants to know is how many miles it's done, right? right, the son said. So I buy an old dump that's got about hundred and fifty thousand miles on the clock. I get it cheap. But no one's going to buy it with mileage like that, are they? And these days, you can't just take the speedometer out and fiddle the numbers back like you used to do ten years ago. They fix it so it's impossible to tamper with unless you're a ruddy watchmaker or something. So what do I do? I use my brains, laddie. That's what I do. How? Young Michael asked, fascinated. He seemed to have inherited his father's love for crookery. I sit down and I say to myself, how can I convert a mileage reading of 150,000 into only 10,000 without taking the speedometer to pieces? Well, if I were to run the car backwards for long enough, then obviously that would do it. The numbers would click backwards, wouldn't they? But who's going to drive a flaming car in reverse for thousands and thousands of miles? You couldn't do it. Of course you couldn't, young Michael said. So I scratched my head, the father said. I use my brains. When you've been given a fine brain like I have, you've got to use it. And all of a sudden, the answer hits me. I tell you, I felt exactly like that other brilliant fellow must have felt when he discovered penicillin. Eureka, I cried. I've got it. (laughs) I, I mean, I don't mean to laugh at that. It's, yo, like, if that's the, um way you feel when you come up with something more power to you putting yourself if no one if 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 you're not going to put yourself on a plateau how can you expect other people to put you on a plateau am i right what'd you do dad the son asked him the speedometer mr warmwood said is run off a cable that is coupled up to one of the front wheels so first i disconnect the cable where it joins the front wheel Next, I get one of those high-speed electric drills, and I couple that to the end of the cable in such a way that when the drill turns, it turns the cable backwards. You got me so far? You following me? Yes, Daddy, young Michael said. These drills run at a tremendous speed, the father said. So when I switch on the drill, the mileage numbers on the speedometer speed backwards at a fantastic rate. I can knock 50,000 miles off the clock in a few minutes with my high-speed electric drill and by the time I'm finished the car's only done ten thousand and it's ready for sale she's almost new I say to the customer she's hardly done 10000 thou belonged to an old lady who only used it once a week for shopping can you really turn the mileage back with an electric drill young michael asked i'm telling you trade secrets the father said so don't you go talking about this to anyone else you don't want to put me in jug do you I won't tell a soul, the boy said. Do you do this to many cars, Dad? Every single car that comes through my hands gets the treatment, the father said. They all have their mileage cut to under 10000 before they're offered for sale. And to think, I invented that all by myself, he added proudly. It's made me a mint. Matilda, who had been listening closely, said, But Daddy, that's even more dishonest than the sawdust." It's disgusting. You're cheating people who trust you. If you don't like it, then don't eat the food in this house, the father said. It's bought with the profits. It's dirty money, Matilda said. I hate it. Two red spots appeared on the father's cheeks. Who the heck do you think you are, he shouted. The Archbishop of Canterbury or something preaching to me about honesty. You're just an ignorant little squirt who hasn't the foggiest idea what you're talking about. Quite right, Harry, the mother said. And to Matilda, she said, You've got a nerve talking to your father like that. Now keep your nasty mouth shut so we can all watch this program in peace. They were in the living room, eating their suppers on their knees in front of the telly. The suppers were TV dinners in floppy aluminum containers with separate compartments for the stewed meat, the boiled potatoes, and the peas. Miss Wormwood sat munching her meal with her eyes glued to the American soap opera on the screen. She was a large woman whose hair was dyed platinum blonde, except where you could see the mousy brown bits growing out from the roots. She wore heavy makeup, and she had one of those unfortunate bulging figures where the flesh appears to be strapped in all around the body to prevent it from falling out. "Mummy," Matilda said, would you mind if I ate my supper in the dining room so I could read my book? The father glanced up sharply. I would mind, he snapped. Supper is a family gathering, and no one leaves the table until it's over. But we're not at the table, Matilda said. We never are. We're always eating off our knees and watching the telly. What's wrong with watching the telly, may I ask? The father said. His voice had suddenly become soft and dangerous. Matilda didn't trust herself to answer him, so she kept quiet. She could feel the anger boiling up inside of her. She knew it was wrong to hate her parents like this, but she was finding it very hard not to do so. All the reading she had done had given her a view of life that they had never seen. If only they would read a little Dickens or Kipling, they would soon discover that there was more to life than cheating people and watching television. Another thing. She resented being told constantly that she was ignorant and stupid when she knew she wasn't. The anger inside of her went on boiling and boiling, and as she lay in bed that night, she made a decision. She decided that every time her father or her mother was beastly to her, she would get her own back in some way or another. A small victory or two would help her tolerate their idiocies and would stop her from going crazy. You must remember that she was still hardly five years old, and it's not easy for someone as small as that to score points against an all-powerful grown-up. Even so, she was determined to have a go. Her father, after what happened in front of the telly that evening, was first on her list. Chapter 3. The Hat and the superglue. The following morning, just before her father left for his beastly second-hand car garage, Matilda slipped into the cloakroom and got hold of the hat he wore each day to work. She had to stand on her toes and reach up as high as she could with a walking stick in order to hook the hat off the peg. And even then, she only just made it. The hat itself was one of those flat top pork pie jobs with a jay's feather stuck in the hatband, and Mr. Wormwell was very proud of it. He thought it gave him a rakish, daring look, especially when he wore it at an angle with his loud checked jacket and a green tie. Matilda, holding the hat in one hand and a thin tube of super glue in the other, proceeded to squeeze a line of glue very neatly all around the inside rim of the hat. Then she carefully hooked the hat back onto the peg with the walking stick. She timed this operation very carefully, applying the glue just as her father was getting up from the breakfast table. Mr. Wormwood didn't notice anything when he put the hat on, but when he arrived at the garage, he couldn't get it off. Super glue is very powerful stuff. So powerful it'll take your skin off if you pull too hard. Mr. Wormwood didn't want to be scalped, so he had to keep the hat on his head the whole day long even when putting sawdust in gearboxes and fiddling the mileage of cars with his electric drill. In an effort to save face, he adopted a casual attitude, hoping that his staff would think that he actually meant to keep his hat on all day, just for the heck of it, like gangsters do in the films. When he got home that evening, he still couldn't get the hat off. Don't be silly, his wife said. Come here, I'll take it off for you. He gave the hat a sharp yank. Mr. Wormwood let out a yell that rattled the window panes. Yeah, he screamed. Don't do that. Let go. You'll take off half the skin on my forehead. Matilda, nestling in her usual chair, was watching this performance over the rim of her book with some interest. What's the matter, Daddy? She said. Had your head suddenly swollen or something? The father glared at his daughter with deep suspicion, but said nothing. How could he? Miss Wormwood said to him, It must be super glue. It couldn't be anything else. That'll teach you to go playing around with nasty stuff like that. I expect you were trying to stick another feather in your hat. I haven't touched the flaming stuff, Mr. Wormwood shouted. He turned and looked again at Matilda, who looked back at him with large, innocent brown eyes. Miss Wormwood said to him, You should read the label on the tube before you start messing with dangerous products. Always follow the instructions on the label. What in heaven's name are you talking about, you stupid witch? Mr. Wormwood shouted, clutching the brim of his hat to stop anyone from trying to pull it off again. Do you think I'm so stupid I glued this thing to my head on purpose? Matilda said, There's a boy down the road who got some super glue on his finger without knowing it, and then he put his finger to his nose. Mr. Wormwood jumped. What happened to him, he spluttered. The finger got stuck inside his nose, Matilda said, and he had to go around like that for a week. People kept saying to him, Stop picking your nose, and he couldn't do anything about it. He looked an awful fool. Serves him right, Miss Wormwood said. He shouldn't have put his finger up there in the first place. It's a nasty habit. If all children had superglue put on their fingers, they'd soon stop doing it. Matilda said, Grown-ups do it too, Mummy. I saw you doing it yesterday in the kitchen. That's quite enough from you, Miss Wormwood said, turning pink. Mr. Wormwood had to keep his hat on all through supper in front of the television. He looked ridiculous, and he stayed very silent. When he went up to bed, he tried again to get the thing off, and so did his wife, but it wouldn't budge. How am I going to have my shower, he demanded. You'll just have to do without it, won't you, his wife told him. And later on, as she watched her skinny little husband skulking around the bedroom in his purple striped pajamas with a pork pie hat on his head, she thought of how stupid he looked. Hardly the kind of man a wife dreams about, she told herself. Mr. Wormwood discovered that the worst thing about having a permanent hat on his head was having to sleep on it. It was impossible to lie comfortably on the pillow. Now do stop fussing around, his wife said to him after he had been tossing and turning for about an hour. I expect it'll be loose by the morning, and then it'll slip off easily. But it wasn't loose by the morning, and it wouldn't slip off. So Miss Wormwood took a pair of scissors and cut the thing off his head, bit by bit. First the top, and then the brim. Where the inner band is stuck to the hair all around the sides and the back, she had to chop the hair right off to the skin, so that he finished up with a bald white ring around his head, like some sort of a monk. And in the front? where the band is stuck directly to the bare skin, there remained a whole lot of small patches of brown leathery stuff that no amount of washing would get off. At breakfast, Matilda said to him, You must try and get those bits off your forehead, Daddy. It looks as though you got little brown insects crawling all over you. People will think you've got lice. Be quiet, the father snapped. Just keep your nasty mouth shut, will you? All in all, It was the most satisfactory exercise, but it was surely too much hope that it had taught the father a permanent lesson. Chapter 4. The Ghost There was comparative calm in the Wormwood household for about a week after the Superglue episode. The experience had clearly chastened Mr. Wormwood, and he seemed temporarily to have lost his taste for boasting and bullying. Then suddenly, he struck again. Perhaps he had had a bad day at the garage and had not sold enough crummy second-hand cars. There are many things that make a man irritable when he arrives home from work in the evening and a sensible wife will usually notice the storm signals and will leave him alone until he simmers down. When Mr. Wormwood arrived back from the garage that evening, his face was as dark as a thundercloud and someone was clearly for the high jump pretty soon. His wife recognized the signs immediately and made herself scarce. He then strode into the living room. Matilda happened to be curled up in an armchair in the corner. Totally absorbed in a book. Mr. Wormwood switched on the television. The screen lit up. The program blared. Mr. Wormwood glared at Matilda. She hadn't moved. She had somehow trained herself by now to block her ears to the ghastly sound of the dreaded box. She kept right on reading, and for some reason, this infuriated the father. Perhaps his anger was intensified because he saw her getting pleasure from something else beyond his reach. Don't you ever stop reading, he snapped at her. Oh, hello, Daddy, she said pleasantly. Did you have a good day? What is this trash, she said, snatching the book from her hands. It isn't trash, Daddy. It's lovely. It's called The Red Pony. It's by John Steinbeck, an American writer. Why don't you try it? You'll love it. Filth, Mr. Wormwood said. If it's by an American, it's certain to be filth. That's all they write about. No, Daddy, it's beautiful. Honestly, it is. It's about... I don't want to know what it's about, Mr. Onewood barked. I'm fed up with your reading anyway. Go and find yourself something useful to do. With frightening sudden as he now began ripping the pages out of a book in handfuls and throwing them into the waste paper basket. Matilda froze in horror. The father kept going. There seemed little doubt that the man felt some kind of jealousy. How dare she, he seemed to be saying with each rip of a page. How dare she enjoy reading books when he couldn't? How dare she? That's a library book, Matilda cried. It doesn't belong to me. I have to return it to Miss Phelps. Then you'll have to buy another one, won't you? The father said, still tearing out pages. You'll have to save your pocket money until there's enough in the kitty to buy a new one for your precious Miss Phelps, won't you? With that, he dropped the now empty covers of the book into the basket and marched out of the room, leaving the telly blaring. Most children in Matilda's place would have burst into floods of tears. She didn't do this. She sat there very still and white and thoughtful. She seemed to know that neither crying nor sulking ever got anyone anywhere. The only sensible thing to do when you're attacked is, as Napoleon once said, to counterattack. Matilda's wonderfully subtle mind was already at work, devising yet another suitable punishment for the poisonous parent. The plan that was now beginning to hatch in her mind depended, however, upon whether or not Fred's parrot was really as good a talker as Fred made out. Fred was a friend of Matilda's. He was a small boy of six who lived just around the corner from her, and for days he had been going on about this great talking parrot his father had given him. So, the following afternoon, as soon as Miss Wormwood had departed in her car for another session of bingo, Matilda set out for Fred's house to investigate. She knocked on his door and asked if he would be kind enough to show her the famous bird. Fred was delighted and led her up to his bedroom where a truly magnificent blue and yellow parrot sat in a tall cage. There he is, Fred said. Its name is Chopper. Make it talk, Matilda said. You can't make it talk, Fred said. You have to be patient. It'll talk when it feels like it. They hung around, waiting. Suddenly, the parrot said, Hello, hello, hello. It was exactly like a human voice. Matilda said, That's amazing. What else can it say? Rattle my bones, the parrot said. (laughs) That was not a a wonderfully spooky voice at all. I apologize. Rattle my... I can't do it. I can't do a spooky voice. I'm not even going to try. Rattle my bones. Maybe if I say it like that? Let's try that. Rattle my bones. It sounds like I don't know, it sounds like a, 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 a newscaster. Rattle my bones, tonight at 7. Um <laughs> He's always saying that, Fred told her. What else can you say, Matilda asked. That's about it, Fred said. But it is pretty marvelous, don't you think? It's fabulous, Matilda said. Will you lend them to me for just one night? No, Fred said, certainly not. I'll give you all my next week's pocket money, Matilda said. That was different. Fred thought about her for a few seconds. All right then, he said, if you promise to return them tomorrow. Matilda staggered back to her own empty house carrying the tall cage in both hands. There was a large fireplace in the dining room and she now set about wedging the cage up the chimney and out of sight. This wasn't so easy, but she managed it in the end. Hello, 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 the bird called down to her. Hello, hello. Shut up, you nut, Matilda said, and she went out to wash the soot off her hands. That evening, while the mother, the father, the brother, and Matilda were having supper as usual in the living room, in front of the television, a voice came loud and clear from the dining room across the hall. Hello, 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 it said. (gasps) Harry! cried the mother turning white there's someone in the house I heard a voice so did I the brother said Matilda jumped up and switched off the telly shh she said listen they all stopped eating and sat there very tense listening hello 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 came the voice again there it is cried the brother it's burglars, hissed the mother. They're in the dining room. I think they are, the father said, sitting tight. Then go and catch them, Harry, hissed the mother. Go out and collar them red-handed. The father didn't move. He seemed in no hurry to dash off and be a hero. His face had turned gray. Get on with it, hissed the mother. They're probably after the silver. The husband wiped his lips nervously with his napkin. Why don't we all go and look together, he said. Come on, then, the brother said. Come on, Mum. They're definitely in the living room, Matilda whispered. I'm sure they are. The mother grabbed a poker from the fireplace. The father took a golf club that was standing in the corner. The brother seized a table lamp, ripping the plug out of its socket. Matilda took the knife she had been eating with, and all four of them crept towards the dining room door, the father keeping well behind the others. "'Hello, hello, hello,' the voice said again. "'Come on!' Matilda cried, and she burst into the room, brandishing her knife. "'Stick em up!' she yelled. "'We caught you!' The others followed her, waving their weapons. Then they stopped. They stared around the room. There was no one there. "'There's no one here,' the father said, greatly relieved. "'I heard him, Harry!' The mother shrieked, still quaking. I distinctly heard his voice, and so did you. I'm certain I heard him, Matilda cried. He's in here somewhere. She began searching behind the curtains and behind the sofa. Then came the voice once again, soft and spooky this time. Rattle my bones, it said. Rattle my bones. I'm sorry, y'all. I tried. I really did. Rattle my bones. No, no. I rattle me bones like no like pirate sound no I just can't do the creepy rattle me bones sounds sultry like this is rattle my bones made by the freaky deaky like (sighs) rattle my bones it said rattle my bones (laughs) they all jumped including Matilda who was a pretty good actress they stared around the room there was still no one there It's a ghost, Matilda said. Heaven help us, cried the mother, clutching her husband around the neck. I know it's a ghost, Matilda said. I heard it in here before. This room is haunted. I thought you knew that. Save us, the mother screamed, almost throttling her husband. I'm getting out of here, the father said, grayer than ever now. They all fled, slamming the door behind them. The next afternoon, Matilda managed to get a rather sooty and grumpy parrot down from the chimney and out the house without being seen. She carried it through the back door and ran with it all the way to Fred's house. Did it behave itself? Fred asked her. We had a lovely time with it, Matilda said. My parents adored it. So... Here's something that I didn't know until I was older. And I want you kids who are listening to this to get this now. I'm sure your parents already know. They just didn't tell you because it's a secret. Wormwood. The parents' last name? You know, they never say Matilda Wormwood. I mean, her name is Matilda Wormwood. But they tend to strive to call her Matilda. But they call the parents nothing more than just Mr. and Mrs. Wormwood. I mean, yeah, Harry. And whatever the wife's name is. I don't even remember. But... Mostly Mr. and Mrs. Wormwood. Wormwood is a very, very bitter wood. It's a plant. And it's toxic. It is moderately poisonous. And is found in Eurasia and North Africa. And widely naturalized in Canada and the United States. Northern United States. So it's really fitting that that's their last name. Not Matilda. But the rest of the family. That never even struck me until just now while I was reading this book. 916 633 1537, Ratchet, and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Uh, leave a review on Podchaser, then leave a review on Apple Podcasts, then leave a review on uh, Good Pods. Um, you could donate to the show at patreon.com. Uh, slash single simulcast you could donate to the show at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast and you could donate to the show via the tip jar on good all the money will go towards buying books and movies for hindsight um, thank y'all so much for listening I greatly appreciate it y'all be good, I'm going at you later peace